y'all. Welcome to Let's Unpack That, a show providing you lighthearted social commentary on ASMR favorites. So, let's unpack that. Hey everyone, welcome back to our show, Let's Unpack That. I am your host, Luis, also known as the college's deafening support when it comes to supporting its marginalized communities. <laughs> and this is my co-host, Christina Anderson. So today I am going to be taking over the show completely. I'm yes, just kidding. <laughs> feminine takeover. <laughs> yes. Tie me up. <laughs> So essentially, I'm going to be taking up a good portion of the airtime today, speaking myself because this is what I'm doing in lieu of a midterm paper, which is really awesome. Dr. Richie. Please don't fail her. (laughs) He is a super cool professor and encourages uh, expressing knowledge um, in different ways that come natural for like an individual person. So I was like... You know, I've been putting so much effort into this radio show. Let's make this into an episode. Yes, nothing better than to heist your own show for your grade. (laughs) Exactly. So today, the topic of um, the episode is going to be how would a Taoist view income inequality? Ooh. Yeah. So I'm taking a uh, my religion perspective is um, Taoism. To start off, for those of you who don't understand what Taoism is... Tell us more. (laughs) Um, So the Webster definition of what Taoism is... Come on, research. (laughs) ...is a Chinese mystical philosophy traditionally found by Lao Tzu in the 6th century BC that teaches conformity to the Tao by unassertive action and simplicity. That's the first definition. The second definition is a religion developed from Taoist philosophy and folk and Buddhist religion, um, which is basically concerned with obtaining long life and good fortune, often by magical means. Ugh, my Western mind (laughs) is thriving. (laughs) Well, this is very much a Western definition. Yes. So, I would say this this would express, you know, kind of the surface level of what is Taoism, but I don't really feel like it goes that deeply into the study of the religion and once you begin to study it and read its texts you kind of learn that Taoism is more like of a cultural thing so it's hard to define into a singular term as any culture would be so it's kind of like what does it mean to be American and depending on who you'll ask you'll get a very different answer Um, but you know there are those common themes um, that are brought up just like they would be brought up in Taoism but so it's important to note that these definitions of what we know to be Taoist have been grouped together by Westerners looking from the outside in Mm -hmm. Um, so a lot of texts and traditions (laughs) these get get lumped into this category even though you know these different texts and traditions are very vastly different depending on the time period how i would define taoism from what i have studied (laughs) kind of what i have studied so far um i would say it's a cultural idea focused around balance or yin and yang i am down with that (laughs) oh my god (laughs) sorry jeff (laughs) richie dad joke number one so it's focused around yin and yang but also Mm -hmm. the Tao. so the Tao is essentially the source of energy for everything so it's this is something that's heavily incorporated to into the chinese worldview Mm -hmm. so that's kind of my definition of what 
uh, Taoism would be, but you'll learn a little bit more as we dig deeper into this episode. But to save you all from trying to understand what Taoism is, from this one episode, I'm going to focus in on the topic of income inequality. Okay. So I want to take a look at how a Taoist would view it, looking at major themes in Taoism throughout Mm -hmm. the way. So you'll understand a little bit more about what Taoism is, but... Yeah. You'll be learning how a Taoist would view income inequality. I think your definition of Taoism in, I guess, relation to Indigenous Peoples Day is that a lot of Mm. Indigenous religions and beliefs run parallel with the idea that everything is intrinsically tied together. Mm -hmm. So what does this inequality that I'm talking about look like? So this is a, to- a topic that's brought up a lot as we are living in an era of unprecedented wealth inequality. Oh my god, yes. Right? <sighs> in our last episode, I talked about eating the rich. <laughs> it will come soon. We will have some ASMR about me eating the rich. <laughs> that might be one of the policy recommendations I make at the end, but stay tuned <laughs> to find out. So according to the Congressional Budget Office, this is a direct cr- quote, by the way. So okay. in 2013... Families in the top 10% of the wealth distribution held 76% of all family wealth. And those at the bottom half, so the bottom 50% of the distribution, held 1%. So 10% owning 76% and the bottom half owning 1%. That's crazy. What are they using this money for? Is they just like using it as like firewood for their chimneys oh i'm gonna throw this stack of millions into my chimney exactly i feel like that's what they're doing so regibold <laughs> light the chimney with my millions <laughs> so this is just a fact that we you know can see from a congressional policy budget but what does this really look like in terms of the everyday life of people yes so, give me those anecdotes yes so Luis, what is your anecdote um about what income inequality has kind of, you know, played out to be in your life. Yeah, I think it's it's kind of been a major role. Um, being an undocumented immigrant for all my life, essentially, I you know, you are very limited to, like, resources and kind of this, this upward mobility in terms of mm-hmm. what, like, what kind of jobs immigrants can afford, like, what... I think for a large part of my life, I, I kind of grew up with that understanding. My parents were always were were always working to like towards making me aware of like the the conditions I, I was in and and so I think it was very daunting as a child mm-hmm. to like realize that like you were poor and they were reasons outside of, you know, your own control. Yeah, my yeah. own control that contributed to that and so you know, my parents were, would always say, you know, work hard, but also <laughs> you are going to be limited and mm-hmm. um, you will always have to, you know, better than everyone else. And then even if you feel like you're like working harder than everyone else, you have to still work twice as hard. So mm-hmm. I think for me, it's always kind of been one in one part exhausting because you know i i shouldn't have to you know spread myself so thin and then exhaust mm-hmm. myself to you know live a, a comfortable life but also mm-hmm. you know it's it's always a reminder that my parents sacrificed a lot for mm-hmm. me to for me to be here so yeah in terms of how income inequality has kind of played out in my life again it's that 
understanding these stark differences because I feel like mm-hmm. a lot of kids don't start off understanding that they're vastly different in terms of like socioeconomic status. I know I definitely didn't. You know, yeah. I had for the most part basic needs met. It's when you go to even just like middle class families, like I would go to these like apartments in the suburbs and I would be like, Oh my god, this is such a nice house <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, literally <laughs> And people would look at me strange, like what? Like the <laughs> what this is decent (laughs) i'm like no this is like this is a mansion yeah i mean i lived in a trailer and it was yeah i'm definitely grateful for and there's always this this like discomfort when like when it came to like being in those like those spaces yeah with like people who were like middle class or upper middle class like i always felt like i didn't feel like i always deserve it in a way like Mm -hmm. i always felt like i needed to like not touch anything or yeah. ask for anything or like uh, it all it made me more aware of how like how poor my family was yeah yeah same um so this is what i've pretty much written in terms of how this what this looks like for me so it looks like grandparents breaking their backs in factories and cleaning rich homes and kitchens for meager wages It looks like the economic downturn of 2008 caused by the rich wanting to get richer and what true corruption looks like when big banks consider themselves too big to fail. When being out of a stable job meant trading labor or anything lying around the house like VHS tapes for loaves of bread and cans of soup for dinner. So that was, like I think, the lowest part of being socioeconomically distressed yeah. of, you know, really relying on a job and not knowing where your next meal would come from. So, yeah. yeah. And I think what's really important, you know, to take away from these conversations is that although our lived experiences are different, mm-hmm. we, we share these, these common aspects. And I think mm-hmm. like white poor folk and poor people of color often, you know, have this divide because it's, it's, it's racial and it, 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 mm-hmm. it stems from the top down. But, mm-hmm. you know, once you, once you realize that, you know, we're both being like effed over <laughs> <laughs> essentially by the same system, by the same system, you know, I, I think it's empowering and, you know, it, it, it should lead towards more, more conversation and yeah. overlap. Yeah. More conversation and more community as well. Yeah. And like a common ground understanding. So to be completely honest, this seems like greed for the individual has very much taken over, and any thought of community and caring is really just a fleeting thought in some sense from mm-hmm. these big businesses and corporations that, you know, kind of have messed up our system. Yeah. This dichotomy between greed and community is really the highlight of, you know, a Taoist perspective on um, income inequality. So um, Taoists have also experienced this inequality and kind of have noted the importance of balance instead of having, you know, this stark difference a very, very long time ago. I'm actually going to be reading a few texts to you all to okay. kind of get a good understanding. So we'll get Story some book time. ASMR. Yeah. So this first text I'm going to be reading to you all is one of the most foundational texts for Taoism. And it's actually the very first text that we read in class. It's called the Tao Te Ching, or the Lao Tzu. Give me that literature architecture. (laughs) So it can be very hard to understand because of the way it's written, but it it holds major importance for understanding what the Tao is and for you all to understand the basis of what Taoism looks like. Um, One of the major concerns of the text is social and cosmic order. 
um, and the Tao in this text is noted as being the point for the source of creative power behind everything. Um, I'm actually reading from uh, Taoism, uh, the Norton Anthology of World Religions. Uh, this is by James uh, Robson, and uh, there's a bunch of different authors throughout the book. Um, but if you want to follow along, I'm on page 85. <laughs> um, I don't have my ebook, sorry. <laughs> I left my Kindle. <laughs> yes. So, specifically, the text points out balance. Um, as you all might have been commonly exposed to this idea as yin and yang. Um, you know, the little, uh, the symbol that features black and white curved shapes that are intertwined. They're balanced into the shape of a circle. Um, and this symbol comes from Taoist thoughts on balance, which is essential to everything a person does and everything that exists. So without balance, everything goes wrong. So there's only balance and disbalance, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes I think people can kind of interpret yin and yang in terms of good and evil, but that's kind of too simplified and not necessarily what yin and yang truly represent. So book one, section two of the Tao Te Ching. The whole world recognizes the beautiful as the beautiful, yet this is only the ugly. The whole world recognizes the good as the good, yet this is only the bad. Thus, something and nothing produce each other. The difficult and the easy complement each other. The long and the short offset each other. The high and the low incline towards each other. Note and sound harmonize with each other. Before and after follow each other. Therefore, the sage keeps to the deed that consists in taking no action, and practices the teaching that uses no words. The myriad creatures rise from it, yet it claims no authority. It gives them life, yet claims no possession. It benefits them, yet exacts no gratitude. It, it accomplishes its task, yet lays claim to no merit. It is because it, lames, it lays claim to no merit that its merit never deserts it. So, what does this mean? <laughs> it's very... I don't Louise know, you girl. You, yeah, I'm dissociating right now. <laughs> I, I'm astral projecting. Um, You're just visualizing. Yeah, you, don't even get me started. <laughs> That's yeah. a big thing of Taoism. But <laughs> so, Taoism is really, within this text, you can kind of see it stressing this idea of balance. It's all of these elements that are mentioned. So, something and nothing. Uh, difficult and easy. Um, all of these are trying to complement each other and work together, and they're vital together because something and nothing are producing each other. Difficult and easy are complementing each other. So one can't exist without the other, and they're all trying to accomplish this common good by working together. Um, so although we can't really say as to how this text might interpret income inequality in today's terms, this idea of balance uh, between elements is relevant and gets applied in this next text. As times changed in China, uh, the various reigns of family of family dynasties came and went. Of course, this happened over several several hundred years, of course. Um, and Taoism shifted its focus as well. So, so far the text I talk about wasn't really connected to any community or movement. It was just kind of like this foundational belief system that mm -hmm. was used. A movement called the Celestial Masters came along in 142 BCE as Taoism began to shift. Lao Tzu is now noted as being a divine being who actually wrote that Tao Te Ching that we just read. So instead of it being just this foundational text, they said, oh, there's this man named Lao Tzu and he actually wrote this Tao Te Ching and he is a divine figure. Something important to note 
Um, one of the major things that kind of sparked this was that during this time, Buddhist missionaries came into China, and this starts to influence the belief systems. So Taoism has to make changes in the way it presents itself. Okay. Um, because Some it's religious so, syncretism. Yeah, so it's so popular. Taoism has to, you know, adapt to yeah. this Buddhist ideology that's coming and influencing things. So from here on out, Buddhist terminology very much gets intertwined um, with pretty much all of the major ideologies, including Confucianism. And all of these ideologies kind of meld into what we know as Taoist thought. This next text that I'm going to be reading, which has much more, I guess, interpretation of what wealth inequality would mean, it's called The Scripture of Great Peace. Instead of the typical poetic texts we've been reading, its form is very similar to uh, Buddhist texts. That's actually a conversation between a teacher and a student. So I'm going to be the teacher, and Luis is going to be the, the celestial master uh, student. So we're going to be reading on page 170 to 171. Let me get my narrating so voice on. The section is called How to Distinguish Between Poor and Rich. So, step forward, perfected. You have been coming to study the doctrine, the Tao, for such a long time. You have really learned it all by now, don't you think? If you had not again spoken to me, I might have thought so. But as soon as I heard your words, I know it is not so. Now I'd like to reach the end, but I can't think of another question. If the celestial master would only reveal my shortcomings once again. All right, come here. What do we mean by rich and poor? Well, those who own a lot are rich, and those who own a little are poor. So, what you have said appears to be true, but in fact, false. What do you mean? <laughs> Take someone who often cheats, deceives, flatters, steals, and robs. How could we call him rich? Or take a situation where the people in general own a lot, while the sovereign owns but little. How could we call him poor? Foolish and stupid as I am, I felt I had to speak up when the Celestial Master set out to instruct me. I am not good enough. I am at fault. <laughs> if, you are, if you say you are not good enough, how shall the common people know the meaning of poor and rich? If only you would think of my ignorance as being as, being as that of a small child who must be instructed by its father and mother before it gains understanding. True. Modest as you are, you don't go amiss. Yes. <laughs> Collect your thoughts. I will tell you all. We speak of rich when there is sufficient supply. By making everything grow, heaven provides enough wealth. Thus we say there is enough wealth when the supreme majestic chi arises and all 12,000 plants and beings are brought to life. Now, skipping down the page a little bit. Um, now, think of heaven as father and earth as mother. Should father and mother be in such extreme poverty, all their children would suffer from poverty. The king's government is a replica of this. Thus, the wise kings of antiquity, whose reign reached out to all 12,000 plants and beings, became lords of great wealth. So, that was our second text. Um, and this text kind of focused on the differences between rich and poor in a very non-conventional way, don't you think? Yeah, it was a call-out. <laughs> I saw her, I mean him, the great celestial master. 
uh, genderless. The movement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So many times I think we also view um, from this perspective of a, a celestial master student who kind of sees uh, this difference between a rich person owning a lot and a poor person not having much at all. But it's very much the opposite. A rich person, there's enough for everyone. And someone that's poor, it's when not everyone is taken care of. So within this, um, there's a big focus on the community in this way. So if yeah. all of us aren't doing well, and none think, of us can. And I think it's also important to note that, from what I interpret, he's also saying, you know, the rich have enough wealth to support the poor, so they're not poor anymore. So I think he's also saying that like these dynasties have also had the great failings of, you know, not providing and, you know, if, if mm-hmm. you have poor people <laughs> and you're not doing it right. Provide for them. A key term that was brought up within this text is chi, um, which is essentially this um, power and kind of this building block of energy that is, that basically makes up the entire universe, but it also uh, creates a building block of yourself as well. So it helps establish this balance within yourself as well as uh, society and the universe in general. So uh, Taoists te- within Taoist texts, there is this constant reminder of this balance of qi within the individual and how that impacts the greater like uh, universe and society as a whole. Um, so when there is this unbalance kind of like with qi not being aligned with people not being taken care of in a larger community, that's a very unbalanced thing. So it's important to rebalance things. And in this text, uh, when this unbalance began, uh, you know, poverty began and people uh, begin to not be taken care of. And that's really distinguishing um, this idea that we have between what it means to be rich and what it means to be poor. Um, So actually, interestingly enough, this text was used in a lot of peasant uprisings. Um, So I think we haven't really come all that far in terms of the inequality that existed then and (laughs) what exists now. You know, it just kind of looks a lot different because of this material wealth that we have thanks to consumerism and capitalism, uh, which definitely is no small feat. But this same income uh, disparity still existed back then. So I feel like a Taoist during this time would probably also be outraged from this concentration of wealth that exists And their thoughts would probably be that we've lost this communal aspect and everyone has to do well for anything to do well. And a rich family can't exist because they can't be rich if another, you know, family is doing poorly. And I also think they would think that a king that isn't really doing their job is causing this disunity and this disharmony and they should probably be replaced, which also happened during this time. (laughs) This was actually a very big period of disunity. Um, And smaller dynasties would pop up, but then they would be replaced because they wouldn't always serve their purpose. Now, moving on, as times changed again, a second movement of the upper clarity began. um, And this was a little bit different because it began to focus on the individual, which is, you know, kind of contradictory to what we just read. That's because there's a lot of disunity during this time. And I think that is kind of reflected in these texts as well, when it's so hard to, you know manage a community and you know this communal aspect it's a lot easier to try and focus on yourself so i think that's kind of where the upper clarity movement was coming from but you know who can tell if you know what came first the individuality or the chaos (laughs) um who really knows but so there was also 
a third. Um, so this third movement is called the Numinous Treasure. And this is the final movement that I'll be talking about because this is a movement that kind of starts to summarize all of this Taoist thought into texts that focus on big ideas. So it takes from the Tao Te Ching and the Celestial Masters in terms of having this connection back to unity and it applies them in a context that focuses on the recitation of text um, to have a universal salvation for all beings. So this universal salvation is kind of coming from this influence of Mahayana Buddhism. So it's shying away from this individualistic themes that are that have kind of started to pop up right before this in the upper clarity movement. <laughs> this is a product of the numinous treasure Ling Bao movement. And this text is called The Wondrous Scripture of the Upper Chapters of Limitless Salvation. On page 307, um, it's kind of where I'm going to start. On page 306, it's kind of a, a preface of a lot of this meditational visualization that takes place. So I'll just read a little bit from the preface. It's, these beings came, mounted on air. They arrived in flying clouds of cinnabar red serious wisps in green chariots with rose gem wheels. Um, so that's kind of this visualization that would take place during this recitation of uh, meditation. That's a grand entrance. <laughs> a very grand entrance. More specifically, on page 307, it's kind of highlighting what happens when this text gets recited, what happens um, as a result of the recitation. So, when expounded the scripture for the sixth time, white hair turned black again and lost teeth were, be were regrown. When he expounded the scripture for the seventh time, the aged were restored to youth and the young were made strong. When he expounded the scripture for the eighth time, wives became pregnant while birds and beasts' wombs were quickly uh, quickened. Okay. Not only, it just said they were quickened. <laughs> uh, not only were those already born made whole, but the unborn as well came whole into life. When he expounded the scripture for the ninth time, the stores of earth were leaked forth, gold and jade laid revealed. When he expounded the scripture for the tenth time, desiccated bones were revived, all rose up to become human beings once again. At once the whole kingdom, both male and female, inclined their hearts to the Tao. All receive protection and salvation. All achieve long life. So, of course, this shouldn't really be taken literal, but, you know, by reciting these texts that focus on community, um, everyone is being whole, everyone is becoming whole again. Yeah. Everyone is being taken care of. So note um, that the birds were not quickly quickened. <laughs> they were not quickly quickened. They're, they were just quickened, <laughs> which is kind of weird. Um, but again, not literal. So now on page 308... Um, it says, the inhabitants of this heaven, having, having encountered the scripture and its ritual, ritual practice, at once universally achieved salvation and lived out their originally allotted spans of life. None of them died before their time from any injury. Those of the entire land were inclined to the way, the way is essentially the Tao, and practiced only goodness. They neither killed nor harmed, they were neither envious nor jealous, they were neither lavish nor thieving, or lavicious nor thieving, they did not covet or desire, they did not hate or act selfishly, their words were not frivolously ornate, nor did evil sounds emerge from their mouths. They were benevolent and loving to all equally, so that they, treat, so that they treated as family even those not of their own blood." 
the kingdom was harmonious, and the people flourished in joy and great peace. When this scripture first emerged, it instructed an entire kingdom by means of the Tao, those with the intention of wholeheartedly revering it as the source of their practice will without fail transcend their generation. That one piece kind of reminded me of our Berea College motto of God is made of one blood, all peoples of the earth, or otherwise known as uh, they were benevolent and loving to all equally so that they treated a fam- as family, even those not of their own blood. So this is really great stuff. And I think it's really beautiful. Um, a lot of these descriptions are visualization techniques, but in terms of looking at this from a uh, wealth inequality standpoint, I think we can't help but believe a Taoist would, you know, kind of see this concentration of wealth as disharmony and imbalance of chi. Of course, with this Mahayana Buddhism that has begun to influence Taoist thought, I think you can really see that as to, you know, this recitation of the text that pretty much helps everyone and everyone begins to feel whole again and um, everyone is loved and taken care of. So not also not only um, are these texts uh, means of achieving well-being for all life, I think Taoism tends to focus on gaining the sense of balance back into whatever is happening, whether that be a kingdom with an emperor that's causing disharmony in the community, or maybe just an imbalance of qi that impacts the world as a whole. Uh, that's really what I think we can see from these texts so far it being really important to focus on community and providing for the community as a whole. So on another note, um, this is going to shift pace a little bit because those are all the Taoist texts that I have for you. So I am going to be giving you all a little bit of um, hope in terms of, I don't want to leave you on this note of, oh, what would a Taoist think of income inequality? And then what does that look like? You know, I really want to give you guys some solutions that have not only been presented here in America, but also um, within these Taoist communities that already exist. So I'm going to start with those, actually. In a 2006 Taiwan Social Change Survey, this is Chang 2010, uh, a statistical analysis of religious values and preferences for various redistributive social policies in contemporary Taiwan um, was took place, um, and they found that uh, the country had also been facing increased economic inequality as a result of globalization and economic liberali- liberalization, which it has everywhere. Um, and in this context, it was really key to understand the motivations for public attitudes towards these redistributive uh, social policies. Mm-hmm. Um, and their key finding from the study was that Protestant Christians tended to favor social insurance and welfare programs, whereas Buddhists and Taoists favor, favored the government's role in providing health care. So instead of, oh, we need insurance and we need welfare programs, um, the Buddhists and Taoists said, no, the government just needs to provide this. Like, this is something that is a common good. Yeah, it should so, be guaranteed by, by the government, yeah. Now, although this doesn't uh, offer any specific evidence about Taoism, it does include that inheriting, it does inherit some of these values of Confucianism. It leads to differences in preferences for redistributive policies and those of Western Christians than those of Western Christian societies. And in another a study by uh, James Miller on Taoism and development, there's a, there's a whole section on community well-being 
to kind of examine the ways in which Taoists have historically interacted with local communities in terms of social and economic development. Um, there was an early Taoist community of which um, we don't really have a clear understanding. It was known as the Way of the Orthodox Unity, um, but it functioned as a theocracy in southwest China for about 70 years. Hmm. I know this is directly from the text. So from uh, 142 CE, um, it was common to the most traditional Chinese communities that it operated on a collective basis, collecting an annual tax from each household and imposing regulations governing the upkeep of the communal environment. So uh, trees that might have fallen or uh, picking flowers and digging holes or drying marshes. So these were some of the common concerns for the spaces in which they lived. In one of the analysis, it says these, injunction, these injunctions draw on an older tradition rooted in the rejection of feudal society and the rituals practiced of the public cults of city-states. So there's a different ethical foundation for the community that was predicated on a sense of being different, being a different kind of society with a different kind of ritual life. Earliest Taoist communities thus tended to be, in a sense, of peripheral communities, predicated on a rejection of the conventional social order and embraced a life on simple communities and natural uh, sacred spaces. So they're very much taking care of their environment as a whole um, and keeping sacred these natural spaces and directly you know, relating to that, to the well-being yeah. of um, the community as a whole. Yeah, um, definitely the environment you live in impacts the, the quality and the health of the community, so. Exactly. So that kind of brings me to my uh, my entire economic stimulus plan. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, just kidding. Um, I'm not going to give you the whole um, stimulus plan that would not only save both the planet from inevitable death, but would also help the poorest inv individuals to create a more equitable society. <laughs> I'm just going to give you the highlights. Wow. So, Christina out here and giving us the hard facts. Yes. Vote me in. <laughs> I don't Where? Know we don't know. Yeah, I don't <laughs> just know. vote her. Just vote for me. Uh, to kind of get to this rich state that a Taoist might strive for of everyone being treated equally. This is my three-point my three point plan. Um, I think there's just three points. Yeah. Um, so besides the obvious death to our heavily capitalist economy with a shift of power towards a just government where there's true representation, no more gerrymandering and money no longer in politics, um, which Oof. is key. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> that, that covers it all. Um, <laughs> some of the easier steps towards change um, would be uh, this plan of taxing the top 1% to fund government programs implementing a top wage to bottom ratio and creating a system of land trusts for low-income housing so let's talk about this let's unpack this let's see how this would break down into something a Taoist would completely support so let's start with taxing the one percent so this is something that we've heard from not only a lot of politicians but i think it's now incorporated a lot more into the you know general narrative of solutions i think especially when it comes to the wall street movement to kind of get away from big banks and the top one percent running everything taxing the top one percent uh, to fund government programs would essentially put more money ideally towards equitable programs that support public education and the arts so not only providing free college education uh, for people below a certain income bracket, I think that's really key, 
um, because those who have the wealth should uh, pay for a college education. But that's not always the case, even though those with, um, you know, a moderate amount of income, sometimes their families don't always support um, their college education. But it should be free for people below a certain income bracket. Um, so this would not only create, this would actually create a more educated workforce in public. And I think this is a Taoist perspective. And I think they would see this as sharing resources to make sure that everyone has what they need and all their needs are met. So this my second point would be an income ratio. Mm -hmm. So this is a little bit different. A little different. bit of math. Yeah. So this is a ratios, <laughs> fractions. Yes. So this is a little bit different than simply saying raise the minimum wage. So <laughs> this is this direct income distribution that we want to talk about between instead of having this concentration we're rebalancing the scale so taking money from a ceo who makes millions and billions and billions beyond our you know even fathomability and distributing that along the hierarchical chain of command so to kind of put this into an example let's take walmart as an example so they recently raised their minimum wage to eleven dollars an hour so essentially their median worker makes uh, 19177 last year, according to the Wall Street Journal. And their CEO salary increased to $22.8 million. So this makes their pay ratio 1,888. 1,888. More times. Please than dial what... this number. <laughs> <laughs> this is more than what a median worker earns. There's a rank that measures this pay gap between different uh, organizations and they're the pay gap between the highest paid employee and the medium sal the median salary. Um, and Walmart ranks 10th among businesses with the largest pay gap. And surprisingly, Mattel, I don't know if you guys know who they are, but they're a toy company. Mm -hmm. uh, they make Barbies and like all yeah, that kind of stuff. Childhood toys. They rank as the number one organization that has the largest pay gap among anything. So what? that's kind of crazy. Yeah. Something that makes toys makes me think about Christmas a lot. <laughs> um, All so, I want for Christmas is income and quality. Yes, that's what a Taoist would say. So <laughs> <laughs> he would not be celebrating the birth of Jesus. <laughs> um, yes, so... Now that we've accounted for, you know, how we're going to educate the general public and how we're going to um, essentially create a better uh, income distribution between the highest paid employees and the lowest paid employees by creating this wage ratio, we have to account for wealth as well and how land end up, ends up working. Mm -hmm. So land trusts are kind of my solution to this. So they are essentially an entity that control for increasing property values. According to the communitywealth.org, um, <laughs> land trusts are nonprofit organizations that permanently buy land, which remove it from the whim of the market value. Um, it keeps it at a consistent price. Hmm. So instead of it being at the whim of the market, they kind of like say this is we're not going to ever increase you know yeah. this property value and essentially what they do is affordable housing is built on this land um and then homes are sold through a long-term renewable lease so when homeowners actually leave they're able to sell their homes but they also have signed this contract that 
although we're going to account for increased property value because homes are one of the biggest, um, not if I think they are the biggest way for a family to accrue wealth in America. Mm-hmm. So um, they are able to get a portion of this increased po- property value. It keeps these houses at affordable rates instead of imagine you lived on an island and then suddenly, you know, a, the property value goes up like exponentially and you have nowhere to live. I actually saw one of those in Seattle, Washington, when I did an internship. I visited (laughs) a land trust, and that's essentially what they did. It was an island, and they had a land trust because the same thing happened in the 90s. There was a housing crisis, and the the property value went up extremely, and a lot of people didn't have anywhere to live, and they grew up on this island, and, you know, you can't really move anywhere else. It's a really big deal. So they made affordable housing um, through land trusts, so... Not only are we accounting for this land trusts, we've taken into account a wage ratio, and we're taxing the 1%. So this sounds like such an ideal society to me. (laughs) I don't know about you. So I think a Taoist would definitely see these policies as creating a richer society where a government reflects the needs of the many instead of just the few. You know, we have this yin and yang balance of, you know, everyone being taken care of, and there's not, you know, disbalance or disharmony between you know, the wealthiest and the poorest, there's really this united, you know, sense of balance that everyone is taking care of. Maybe one of these episodes, I'll give you all my ideas on what I would do to help the environment as well, because lordy, that's my whole (laughs) policy stimulus plan (laughs) when I get voted into some imaginary office. So vote for Christina Anderson, 20... Mm, yeah. yeah. <laughs> for... Mm, yeah, and for... where? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you all for sticking with us. This has been a very long episode. Yeah. Um, but I think it's been uh, very valuable. Yes. Um, lots of have, information. Yeah, lots of information. I hope you all, you know, now understand how a Taoist would view income inequality in America. So to stick to our traditional view of... Uh, the ASMR portion of our show, which is <laughs> the tradition, I wanted to add ASMR of what I think community sounds like. It's a collection of a bunch of different things. Pretty much throughout my week, I've been, you know, pulling out my recorder and being like, hey, can I record y'all? <laughs> um, anytime that I kind of felt like there was community. So you'll hear uh, meetings with actually Luis and I and another friend, Hunter Malone, doing a uh, meeting for Berea Pride. And then I have a labor meeting in there. I have the annual watch party of American Horror Story (laughs) (laughs) with Uh, a bunch of friends, which definitely is community to me. Oh, my God, yeah. And then... If you warn, there's a bunch of screaming. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to have to cut some of it out. The gays are living. (laughs) Some witch stuff happens, and we're like, ah! (laughs) (laughs) Yes, so that's that's what what community (laughs) sounds like to me. Um, and then I decided to, to take a little bit of an artistic route in terms of what community sounds like, um, okay. like metaphorical. Tell me, great celestial yeah. master. <laughs> I just recorded some sounds of nature and okay. some birds chirping and some crickets doing their thing. Crickets um, cricketing. Cricketing, yeah. Because I think sometimes the natural world tends to have this harmony and this unity that the human world doesn't always have. I think they focus on community a lot more than we do sometimes so that's kind of what i wanted to highlight in my what you know community sounds like to me so yeah. thank you all for listening and now we're going to transition into the asmr portion of let's unpack that see you all next time bye
Um, so maybe seeing a fairness ordinance, like a fairness vote, but also like, do we just want to establish LGBT plus affirming partnerships? Like, you know, maybe create a list of, as we're doing this, maybe see where we get a lot of support and where we see a lot of pushback. Uh, like those sorts of goals. So like the the big overarching goal would be okay. a fairness ordinance, but what are some lower hanging fruit that we can grab as we're getting to that point so then that way we don't get super burnout and bogged down if we swing and miss the first time. college specific things okay. in terms of like I guess I mean the number one goal would be to hear eventually you know Lyle Ruloff say that he supports a fairness ordinance that would be like incredible if that could ever happen I would like to see um, an effort to activate and engage voters with a specific emphasis around um, student voters um, and young folks. Lyle Ruloff never came out and said that he would support a fairness ordinance like get angry and then put that anger towards mm -hmm. like really good things so. yeah. yeah does this feel fair to you i said revitalize support mm -hmm. on and off campus so like mm -hmm. revitalizing what support is already there but then also reorganizing that movement off of campus yeah cool 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 cool